Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. I wish uh, Pete Buttigieg well and, and uh, respect his service, and I imagine he'll continue finding ways to serve. And so you don't agree with the plotting for him dropping out? I've said how I feel about this. Hi. Oh, you're good? He's with you. Oh, okay. All right. Congresswoman, how are you doing today? Thank you for the op-ed. No, come on. I'm not going to ask you to go on third party either. Okay, I got you. So I just want to say thank you, first of all, for the op-ed you wrote in the Hill the other day. It was really inspiring and kind of shed a lot of light on our foreign policy situation as pertaining to Russia. However, I want to touch on the election part of that because you wrote the bill for the Securing Americans Election Integrity Act. Uh, it's the only bill that really addresses open and closed source within our elections because our elections aren't even owned by the people, they're owned by corporations. Why do you think not only the mainstream media, the establishment, but the people, the voters, are so asleep when it comes to our elections? I think there's a variety of reasons. People feel disheartened. They feel like that their, their voices and votes haven't counted for so long and that the power of big money and big uh, political and powerful interests in Washington have always ruled the day, unfortunately. But my message to voters here and across the country is that if this is concerning to you, then we must vote. We must make sure that our voices are heard and we must continue to press leaders in Washington to pass my legislation, the Securing America's Elections Act, so that very simply there will be no shadow of a doubt that the votes that we cast cannot be manipulated with without there being a paper trail so that we can audit and make sure that those counts are accurate and that the leaders of our country are actually chosen by the people. Thank you. Hi, Tulsi. Aloha. Welcome back. Um, I have a two-part question pertaining to DNC corruption. You sort of touched on this today uh, in your speech when you talked about the fact that we're heading to a convention in which we've had over 90 superdelegates basically come out and publicly state that they're okay with thwarting the public will, and if Bernie Sanders goes into the convention as the highest post, that they want to stop him. That's the first part. The second part, I'm pretty disgusted by the fact that they have continually left you off the debate stage. And yet Michael Bloomberg, who has been able to come in, they changed the rules for him. They wouldn't do it for Cory Booker. They wouldn't do it for you, but they did it for him. So what are your feelings on both of those two things and how are they related? Uh, you know, it's, it points to both of these issues really point to the powerful elite in Washington making decisions that best serve their interests rather than honoring and respecting the voices of the people of this country, whether they agree or disagree with what the outcome of the election is. I think that has a very troubling effect on our democracy and on uh, whether or not people feel like they should even get up and be involved in this process in the first place. Uh, this is why it is so important for all of us to continue to raise our voices, both at the ballot box, online, uh, going and talking to our own elected leaders about how, reminding them who they work for. Uh, yeah. As the Democratic nominee, these are some of the changes that I'll bring about. I'll get rid of superdelegates, work to make sure that we have open primaries so that every Democratic candidate running for president speaks to all Americans and offering their vision of how they will serve uh, and making sure that we make it as easy and as, as accessible as possible for people to exercise their right to vote. Right, can I do one follow-up thing? I know why I said one for each person. All right, okay. Two questions. <laughs> All right, you're next. You can come on in. 
I'm gonna, can I take two, two quick minutes? Okay. Awesome, so uh, St. John here, I'm backstage with uh, presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard, and this is a super, super, super thrill for me. Thank you, you, you have been uh, covering our campaign and talking about the work and the message that we've uh, been bringing to people across the country for a long time, and I'm so happy to see you here today. Well, it's exciting to be here, and it's always great seeing you. And for our audience, I do a Top 40 radio show, and there are a lot of people who, you know, they go, oh, it's uh, Tuesday is the day we're going to go vote. I think I've heard of that Biden guy. I'll vote for him. I wanted to give you a quick opportunity to explain to people why your campaign is so important and why they should vote for Tulsi Gabbard in this primary. That now is the time for a new generation of leadership uh, that, that brings a fresh approach to solving the problems that people all across this country are struggling with. Uh, and it's important to make sure that you have someone who has experience to turn that vision into reality. Uh, I bring experience in two very important ways, both through my nearly 17 years of service in the military, combined with my service in Congress now for almost eight years, focused on national security and foreign policy. Uh, I am best prepared to walk in on day one to fulfill that role of Commander-in-Chief. And secondly, the experience that I have in working with Congress, regardless of which political party is in charge. Uh, for your listeners, they'll hear a lot from different candidates who are saying, I'm going to do this, this, and this. But unless you're able to work with Congress, whether it's controlled by Republicans or Democrats, you're not going to be able to get any of it done. And we'll continue to see the perpetuation of these problems that we've been struggling with for so long. My first six years in Congress as a Democrat were with the Republican majority in the House. And regardless of where we disagreed on a few or many issues, I found ways to work with my colleagues, putting country and the American people first to deliver results and pass legislation. It's those experiences that I'll bring to serve as president to make sure that our government is of, by, and for the people, breaking through the hyperpartisan gridlock and making sure always, every day, the interests of the American people come first. Can I follow up with one quick thing? Real quick. I know that uh, foreign policy, that's, that's where I really, like, when you came to sort of in front of my face, I was like, oh my God, she's actually talking about the fact that if we don't spend trillions on regime change wars in the Middle East, we can bring that money right back here and spend it back here. And there are a lot of people who don't connect foreign policy and what happens back here at home. This, this has been uh, not only a central message of my campaign, I'm the only candidate that's raising these issues of the cost of war, but it's also one that's attracted the support from Americans from across party lines who may have strong disagreements on other policies, but recognize that this is central to every other issue that we face. That so long as we have leaders in Washington, a president and commander in chief who is willing to send trillions of our taxpayer dollars to go and wage wasteful wars that do not make us any safer, we will never have the resources that we need to serve the interests of the American people, to invest in things like education and health care, climate change, protection of our environment, uh, infrastructure. There are so many pressing needs that we have here. This is why I'm running for president, to bring about this sea change in our foreign policy, exercise that leadership, and get our priorities straight. Well, I, Thank you. I, I can safely say you're a once-in-a-lifetime candidate, and I'm thrilled, thrilled to have this time. Thank you. Oh, say can you see 
by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave One more time, ladies and gentlemen, John Lloyd Young. All right, take a seat, take a seat. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm here today to share a little knowledge about me and why I'm here with you and with Tulsi. I've managed to spend the night and work in 49 states. I've just never been to Alaska. I used to travel with the Harlem Globetrotters, so I've seen every inch of this nation, and just like many people across this country, I had started to lose my faith in our political system. Anyone else agree with me? Did you start to lose faith in your political system? I didn't want Trump. I didn't want Hillary. I didn't like my options. Anybody else feel the same way? And all of that changed for me on September 8th of 2019. I had started to hear rumors about a female candidate with military experience. Someone who had been serving our country and serving her community since she was young. I heard she was active, not just in the community, but physically active. She's a surfer, she's a snowboarder, she's an active politician. I thought to myself, I wanna know what this person's thinking. I don't want someone who's on their way out to tell me what I should be doing or how I should feel. So it ignited a sense of patriotism in me that I didn't know I had. And that came from Tulsi when I heard her speak in person at a town hall near USC on September 8th. Was anyone else there? Were you there? Yes. It was that day I started paying attention again. I started listening. I started reading not just headlines, but articles. Because in order for us to make a change as a nation, we have to do it together. The only thing that is unchangeably certain is the fact that nothing is unchangeable or certain. John F. Kennedy said that. 
I read an article that said Donald Trump's going to be impossible to beat now. Impossible is not a fact. Impossible is an opinion. Muhammad Ali said that. And for us, our country cannot be destroyed from the outside. If we falter or lose our freedoms, it's because we destroyed ourselves. Abraham Lincoln. So since September 8th, I've been watching Tulsi and her entire camp go across the nation, not just talking to everyone, but listening to everyone. It doesn't matter the age, the race, the region of the country. People are starving to be heard, their voices to be heard. We don't want to be silenced. No one wants to be or live in a divisive country. Am I right? We don't have to agree. That's our right. We get to have different opinions, but we all deserve something better. And I'm pretty sure that's why each and every one of us is here today, because we all deserve better. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, the reason you're here today is the reason I'm here today. It is my honor and privilege to introduce to you here at the beautiful, majestic downtown, Tulsi Gabbard, ladies and gentlemen. for being here. Have a seat, have a seat. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Aloha. It's good to be back in California. Thank you for coming out. Please help me give a warm thanks to Jay Flats and John Lloyd Young for kicking us off here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I think Jay talked about some of these inspiring quotes from previous presidents that really do remind us about why we're gathered here and what lights our path forward. That we can have people who are gathering in rooms and halls like this, as we have throughout this entire campaign, all across the country, big cities, small towns, west coast, east coast, midwest, north, south, people coming together from across party lines, Democrats, Republicans, independents, progressives, conservatives, because we're bound together by one thing. We are bound together by one thing, a deep 
love and care and concern for each other, for our country, and for our future. That's you. That we can have people who voted for Donald Trump, voted for Hillary Clinton, voted for Bernie Sanders, voted for Ron Paul, coming together out of a love of country, not out of a hate for Donald Trump, not out of hate for any one group or another, but motivated by love. And this is what inspires me every single day, that in this people-powered campaign, that we have this diversity of ideas and backgrounds and experiences of people who are heeding the call, heeding the call of those great leaders who have come before us. Jay shared a few very powerful quotes that really remind us the power to bring about the change we need to see lies in our hands. And we will not fall into the traps that are being set by the divisive talking heads on television or the party leaders on both sides who are seeking to tear us apart. And for what? Because they care about you? No. It is about power. It is about greed. It is about influence. It is about selfish interests rather than recognizing their responsibility to you. Their responsibility to think about and to stay focused on how their actions can have a positive or negative impact on the people of this country. This is, this is both disheartening almost every single day but also should be hope-inspiring because this causes us to look in the mirror and say, how can I be the change? What action can I take? Remembering President Kennedy saying, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And our country is a representation of us, of who we are. And that is the question and the challenge that is before every single one of you. What, what message do you want to send to Washington on Tuesday? What message do you want to send about what kind of future you want for yourselves, for your children, for generations to come? That at a time when we are surrounded seemingly by divisiveness and this us versus them tribalistic mentality, fill in the blank, whether it's politics or who you voted for or against or what your profession is or where you grew up, where you came from, the color of your skin, how you worship, if you worship, or whether you watch Fox News or MSNBC or CNN. At such a time in this cancel culture where we've forgotten who we are. That if you, you dare hear someone say something that might be offensive to you or that makes you angry or that you disagree with, it seems more often than not the easiest go-to action or answer to take is say, silence, 
cancel, delete your account, I don't want to know you. That's a dangerous thing. It might be easy, it might make you feel better, it might make you feel kind of righteous, but it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing that undermines the very foundation of this country that is rooted in freedom for everyone. Rooted in freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom to worship. That freedom means that every one of us has the right to speak, to share our views, to share our opinions, and that we are stronger for it as a nation. When all of us, we stand up for that right, every one of us, and that we treat each other with respect, that even as we may disagree, even as, this happens to me too, Sometimes I'll hear people saying things on TV that drive me crazy. How can you say this? The truth is so obvious. I am willing to lay my life down for that person's right to say those things. This is what our freedoms are all about. And to not be afraid of it, not, not be afraid of having an open and honest discourse and debate about our ideas. Setting aside the superficial barriers that so often stand between us where if you say, okay, you're a Democrat, therefore you are this. Or if you have an R next to your name, then therefore you are that. If you were a Trump voter, therefore you are this. If you were a voter for this person or that person, prejudging people based on these superficial classifications rather than recognizing who we really are and giving people the benefit of the doubt to say, okay, maybe, maybe I don't like the decision that you made. Maybe I should try to better understand it, better understand you. So as we think about how we heal these divides in this country, this is where we find the answer. The answer is in our hearts. The answer is in our hands, the choices that we make at the ballot box, but also the choices that we make every day. I was meeting uh, with some friends last night in San Francisco and made some new friends, and this was the conversation we were having, that so often there are people who just don't feel safe expressing their opinion in this vitriolic cancel culture. And it made me sad, because this is America. We're supposed to feel free. We're supposed to be able to share our opinions without being concerned about what impact it may have on your job or what friends you may lose in the process or what family members may decide to shut you out. The change lies in our hands and it lies in our ability to treat each other with respect, to follow the example of President Lincoln when he said, I don't like that man. I need to know him better. Think about that. And that is the beautiful thing that I've been so grateful to experience throughout this entire campaign, where people may come in with preconceived notions, but through the course even of an hour or two hour long conversation, kind of start to think about things, maybe from a different perspective. You hear from someone who's coming from a, 
uh, a different experience, saying, hey, well, what about this angle on that issue? Maybe here's a different solution that you haven't thought of. It's a beautiful thing that we not only need more of in our everyday lives, but this is the spirit of what is necessary in Washington, where we treat each other with respect, and we are inspired by the example of leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King, who showed us very clearly that even at a time of terrible divisiveness, with a dark shadow being cast over our country, in his battle for justice, his battle for equality, his battle for opportunity, fighting against poverty, fighting against war, always staying very consistent with the heart of his movement that was centered around the reality that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And that hate, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. It is this love, or what we in Hawaii call aloha, that has the power to heal our wounds, that has the power to reignite that spark of light that exists in every single one of our hearts, to inspire us to treat each other with respect, to remember that we are all God's children. We are all connected. And therefore, see each other for who we are and work together to bring about that positive change for all of us really bringing to heart what it says in our Pledge of Allegiance, liberty and justice for all, that we are one nation under God, indivisible, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. This is our how. How do we do this? And I get asked this all the time when things seem so dark and so dismal, I'm just curious, how many of you are on Twitter? Okay, a handful. The rest of you live better lives. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> it's a great way to communicate, but you gotta be careful. There's a lot of toxicity where people feel comfortable saying pretty nasty, hate-filled things on Twitter that they would never say in real life. But even there, on that platform, how do you be the one that brings the light to that conversation? Instead of adding more of that darkness, bringing that light. Seeing how we can shape the direction not only of these conversations, but drive people to themselves to begin to reflect. Saying, what impact am I having on the world? You may not get the immediate response that you hope for. Nonetheless, you drive on because we cannot stop here. The work is not done after you cast your vote on Tuesday. You've got your ballot right there. <laughs> the work is not done after you put that in the mailbox. <laughs> Thank you. So I start with this message 
because as we open the conversation, I want to hear what's on your minds. I want to address any lingering concerns that you may have. But I start with this message because this is at the heart of how we move forward. This is what is at the heart of what lights that path forward for us. Yes, the obstacles are great. The challenges are many. Every day we are reminded of how much the, the DNC and their corporate media partners are trying to silence our voices because they're afraid of the truth. They're afraid of the people's voices. And they're afraid of the change that we seek to bring about that will lead us towards a government of, by, and for the people, wrestling that power from their hands in the government that exists today of, by, and for the powerful elite. You know something is really wrong when as day after day goes on in this campaign, you're seeing people spending lots of money and time and energy to try to line up superdelegates in advance of the convention in Milwaukee to say, we got to be prepared to overrule the voices of the people because we're scared of who they might choose. This is the reality that we're facing. And the magnitude of the obstacles that we have to overcome. But we cannot be dismayed. We cannot be cowed. We just got to say, all right, we got to work harder. We got to speak up louder. Because as we look throughout history, all of the big changes that we've seen in this country have come from we, the people, standing up and making sure that our voices are heard. That's on us. That's on us. And this continues after the election because even as we talk about the different ideas and solutions that we want to see implemented, we're dealing with a pretty paralyzed Congress at the moment who need to be reminded who they work for and that the decisions that they make can no longer be made in the, the interests of their best friend, big time lobbyists who work for big pharma or big insurance or private prisons, you can fill in the blanks, but remind them about who has the power to hire and fire them. That's you. That's you. And your continued engagement, our continued conversation will be necessary to pass those bills, to enact legislation that really will bring about the systemic change that we need to see in every single sector, whether we're talking about ensuring quality, affordable health care for every American, protecting our environment and ensuring clean water and clean air in this country, enacting real criminal justice reform that we have not yet seen in so long, bringing about real comprehensive immigration reform, tackling this homeless crisis that is affecting people all across our country, <laughs> protecting our environment, transitioning off of fossil fuels, and investing in a clean, green, renewable energy future. All of these things, these aren't just Democrat ideas. 
these are changes essential for humanity, for all of us. And by staying focused on that and away from the polarization is how we bridge these divides in the country and in Congress so we can just get stuff done. We can deliver results where we can bring about an end to this common refrain that we've heard over and over and over again for too long, that there's just no money. There's no money for education. There's not enough money to pay our teachers what they deserve. There's not enough money to protect our environment. There's not enough money to freaking get masks and testing kits for this coronavirus. Somehow, Scotland and South Korea and many other countries in between have figured it out where they've got drive-through stations. If you're feeling a little bit sick, you can go and pull your car up, get your test back, and get the results within minutes. What, what, how many testing kits does California have? Like 200 for the entire state? Give me a break. But this is what I'm talking about. We've, told, we've been told over and over again, there's not enough money to make sure the needs of the people are being served. And yet, where are our taxpayer dollars going? How, how is it that there's not enough money for the essential things that the people of our country need? They're going to wage these wasteful regime change wars going and toppling dictators in other countries, following up those wars with nation-building missions. They're going towards this new Cold War with escalating tensions between the U.S. and other nuclear-armed countries like Russia and China, going towards a new nuclear arms race that is being fueled by treaties that are being thrown in the trash that have kept us safe. All of these things are not making us more safe, but they're costing us tremendously in lives, with our men and women in uniform, the lives of the people in the countries where we wage these wars, and they're costing every single one of us with the dollars that are coming out of our pockets and that are not going towards serving our national security needs or the everyday needs of people right here at home. This is the change we'll bring about. to bring about an end to these wasteful wars and instead redirect our taxpayer dollars towards serving your needs, the needs of everyday Americans right here at home. This change is within our hands. The choice is ours. We can kick the can down the road, cross our fingers and hope, hey, maybe something will work out somehow, some way or we can make that decision now to take action, not only ourselves, but making sure when you go and cast your ballot on Tuesday that you got a car full of people, making sure that there's not a single name on your cell phone contact list that you haven't talked to, 
making sure you've sent those messages to everybody you know on Facebook. I know some of you got thousands of people on Facebook you can be talking to. Don't think that your voice doesn't matter. Don't stay home and not cast your vote because you think your voice won't be heard. It is the only thing that matters. It is the only thing that can bring about this change. And this is where I am both grateful to every one of you and I am counting on every single one of you to continue to be the fuel behind our people-powered campaign, continue to carry our message out to voters so that they know even with all the corporate media blackouts and smears, even with all of these challenges, it is the voices of the people that will be heard. This is our country. Let's make sure Washington remembers that. This is our country, and it's our future. All right, we've got a couple of microphones here. I want to kick open the conversation. We have four mics and runners who will be running around here. Uh, yes, sir, we'll start with you. I think your hand was up first. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to do a quick shout out to Abraham. He definitely has a, his hands full. Abraham's my husband, y'all. Where's he at? <laughs> there he is. I do have a lot of questions, but um, just one really uh, is prevalent in my head, and that is that um, you're uh, that you stay secure in your security um, because it seems like when people go against the grain, they run into a lot of you know. Um, a lot of feedback uh, to say, and I just want to, you know, ask you about that. It concerns me. Thank you. I get these calls from my dad with the very same concerns, uh, and I, I appreciate it as something that we don't take lightly, um, that we are very conscious of. We have some security assistance here today, and we're taking precautions. I'll leave it at that. Is that cool? All right. I know you guys got my back anyway, so. I take that any day of the week. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, sir. Well, one moment. He'll, he'll send you the microphone here. What do you think about our relationship with Saudi Arabia? and the fact that they are the real enemy, and but yet at the same time, without them, our whole economy will collapse. Can you describe the relationship, please? For too long, leaders in our country have bowed to the interests of Saudi Arabia, even to the detriment of our own security in our own interests. As president, that stops with me. We are the United States of America, and we have to exercise the kind of leadership, both with regards to countries like Saudi Arabia, with Turkey right now, countries who believe they can act with impunity 
because of our country's track record in refusing to stand up and say no. Saudi Arabia, I mean, I'll, I'll mention this briefly, but I want to talk for a moment about Turkey as well, because there's something happening right now uh, that has a very direct risk uh, to, to all of us. Saudi Arabia, and I've supported legislation to do this, to stop sending them weapons. We have to stop supporting their genocidal war in Yemen that is continuing to this day causing the deaths of so many people and millions of people more to starve and suffer. Understanding Saudi Arabia remains both a direct and indirect supporter of terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and others. They're the number one exporter of the Wahhabi Salafist ideology that's fueling these terrorist organizations. And we've got to call it out like it is and call for an end to that. What's happening with Turkey right now as a NATO ally they have started a war with Syria, one they've been waging for a very long time, a little bit in the shadows, a little bit behind the curtains, where they have been directly supporting the very same terrorist groups. Our, our troops there try to defeat ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Why? Because they want to see regime change in Syria. They've now invaded and are occupying the northern part of Syria. And their soldiers are literally fighting alongside ISIS fighters. Yet they're asking the United States for weapons and aid and support, pulling the NATO ally card, escalating this war. Russia has now sent a couple of battleships to Syria, putting us at risk of being forced to enter into a larger war against Russia, the other nuclear-armed country in the world. This is what is at risk here. And the problem with, and this is why Strong leadership based on experience and understanding in national security and foreign policy is necessary to have in the White House as Commander-in-Chief, to be able to recognize what Turkey is doing and how detrimental an impact it has on our national security and how the very fact that they are supporting, they are directly supporting Al-Qaeda in Syria, who have control over this city of Idlib, it is a massive betrayal to every single one of us who enlisted in the military after 9-11, to every single American, to every single family member and uh, loved one of first responders and those who were killed on the attacks on 9-11. And yet what we're hearing from the administration are some words of support for Turkey because they're a NATO ally, rather than having the courage and the strength to say no. We will have no part of this war. As a member of Congress, this is something that we will make sure is made clear. But this is one of many examples that point to why this decision that's before you and the country today about who you want to see serve as Commander-in-Chief is so critical when it comes to decisions like this and recognizing that foreign policy is domestic policy that so long as we're continuing to spend $4 billion a month in countries like Afghanistan, that's $4 billion a month. That's not going towards dealing with things like the coronavirus. There are debates happening in Congress about, well, should we appropriate a billion dollars of emergency funds or $8 billion of emergency funds to make sure that we get the resources we need to prevent this virus from taking hold here? 
on the high end of that $8 billion. That's two months in Afghanistan. Nickel and diming for what we need here at home, but turning a blind eye for what we're spending on these wars that don't make us any safer. These are just a few examples of what is at stake and how foreign policy is domestic policy, why this matters to all of us right here at home. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thanks for having this. I appreciate it. Thank you for and, being uh, here. I hope that besides the uh, any physical threat, I hope there's nothing like that. But I do appreciate your bravery for a lot of the things that you've said that inspired me, things that needed to be said, yeah. calling, calling out Hillary Clinton. And I, you're, the bravery I'm talking about now is not physical bravery. It's the bravery that, you know, you have to, you're going to take the lumps for this no matter what happens. So I just wanted to start with that. Thank now, you. My question is, um, at some point, to change this, like the military industrial complex, what are your thoughts on, you know, rank and file military deciding not to take orders, which is their right, if they believe it's unconstitutional, if it's immoral? Like, what's, your, how do you feel about that? I don't think you, that I know of, you haven't discussed it, and I'm just curious about how you feel about rank and file members taking it upon themselves to stop the thing. The military is bound to obey legal orders. And every service member has the right to stand up and reject an illegal order. There are a lot more servicemen and women across party lines who take that oath to our Constitution and to support and defend, protect the safety and security of the American people very seriously, and who understand how important it is that they remain loyal to our country and the American people and to the orders that are delivered to them by their commanders and the Commander-in-Chief. I, I don't want to get our servicemen and women mixed up into the divisive politics of our country. I think it's important that the way this system works is that we bring about that pressure to our political leaders to make sure that those policies, those decisions that they are making, especially as it relates to our troops, are decisions that really honor the great sacrifice that they are willing to make for our country. And they're counting on us to do that. They're willing, along with their loved ones and family members, to make the greatest sacrifices for all of us. The very least that we can do as everyday Americans, as voters, every leader in Washington, our president and commander in chief, is to provide that pressure to make those decisions that really do honor their sacrifice. Hi, I was curious about what the conversation around finding a solution to the homelessness crisis in our nation in general and Los Angeles in particular, what that sounds like. Um. Thank you. 
first of all, and without hesitation and without delay, this homeless crisis, as president, I would declare as a national, the national emergency that it is. And here's why that's important. Because even as I've gone and, and walked through Skid Row and had conversations with people who are without homes, many of them being veterans, many of them single moms, many of them people who have worked hard or even working and still unable to be able to afford a roof over their heads. This is something that is afflicting big cities and small towns, rural communities and urban communities all across this country. And this crisis requires a concerted and coordinated approach by the federal, state, and local governments partnered with the private sector to be able to address those needs. There are three major ones that we need to look at. The number one driver of homelessness is the skyrocketing cost of housing in this country. Even by federal government standards, when they say, oh, well, we're building affordable housing units, I can speak from personal experience in Hawaii, something that you might call affordable is not even close, even to those who are working a full-time job or even two. It's recognizing the reality of the fact that nearly 80% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Just one accident or unexpected expense away from being pushed out on the street. And make sure that those standards, the equations that are used at the government level are actually matching the reality of what people are experiencing uh, on the ground. And making sure that, you know, I served on the city council before I ran for Congress, that the zoning laws that are in place at the local level are making it possible for us to be able to develop as many of these truly, truly affordable or transitional units that our country really requires. Uh, we've got to cut through the red tape. We've got to cut through the bureaucracy and ultimately address our resources towards three major areas. Number one, a mass development of truly affordable units, whether they're tiny houses or container homes. Let's be creative and see how we can do this. and provide the resources necessary to the many amazing organizations, nonprofit groups, people who have dedicated their lives and their time towards providing mental health assistance, providing help for those who need it, who are dealing and struggling with substance abuse and addiction. In those three areas, by treating this as the emergency that it is and dedicating the resources necessary, we can make an incredible impact in progress towards ending homelessness in America. I want to grab somebody from the back there. Yes, ma'am. Oh. Thank you. Last time I didn't have a chance to have a question. I appreciate what you are doing. In fact, I voted already yesterday. And although your chances might be minimal, but I hope you and Bernie together make a good team. At any rate, I, I see the greatness yet imperfection in many of the candidates, especially the secular ones. I was at an event and somebody asked, who is the most secular candidate? I thought the one who dares not to say 
G bless A. I left the theocracy and hope anybody who left us, who leads us next, has a strong stand against the spread of Islamic theocracy. While I respect everybody's peaceful faith, I am wondering what would you do in terms of foreign policy to promote separation of state and religion and making human rights of all as prerequisite for lifting sanctions against religious or other dictatorial states. Thank you. Thank you. There, there was a few different points in there uh, that you brought up. I think, first of all, it's important for us to recognize and respect the freedom of religion in this country and the separation of church and state. That just as... For me, in, in the most deep and personal way, my personal relationship with God is something that I value and treasure and gives me great inspiration and strength and peace every day of my life. For those who may have a different way of worshiping or choose not to worship at all, I completely respect your right to do so. Theocracies are very dangerous, and we see how this has has uh, had a negative impact on different countries in the world. And we also look back to what the founders of this country were running from and escaping from. I think it's important that we look here in the United States of America about how we not be complacent about these freedoms that are enshrined in our Constitution, that we make sure that we are upholding them here at home. But I also know that with other countries in the world, it is not our place to go in and tell them, well, you have to create a little mini America in your country. As much as we may disagree with their governance or their laws. Yes, ma'am, I missed you earlier. Thank you. Al al Aloha. Aloha. I, I would like to m make a s s statement and ask a question. Okay. First, Loka Samasta Sukhinu Bhavantu. May all beings in all realms everywhere be happy and free. I appreciate you being a voice f f for so many, for those who don't have voices. And for those of us who struggle to hold on to ours, I had a traumatic brain injury that affected my ability to speak. I was a public speaker, performance artist, singer, fierce advocate for civil rights, the rights of all life, for the life of an animals, our sentient beings. I am a 48-year-old woman who has been living a holistic, vegan life since I was 12. My heart breaks over our inability to collectively own a consciousness 
Not, not, not just about whether we eat animals, but how we treat sentient beings, life. I am here with my service dog, Jasmine. Sit. Jasmine is a pit bull terrier. This dog is the most gentle being on the planet. She will overwhelm you with her love. She is a lover, not a fighter. A kisser, not, not a biter. Jasmine, down. Stay. She serves love. My, my, my life since a young woman in my church involved in missionary outreach, then in my service in the National Rapid Response Corps to serve in disaster relief and teaching health, ed 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 education, those needing immediate emergency care in, in times of disaster. And I am a member of the LGBTQI community. And my, my, my voice has been silenced. My, 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 my life and my love has been up for legislative d d d debate. My, my rights. And I have fought for, for them. I stood on the Mormon temple in 2008 with my peace flag, preaching a message of love, because I believe that truth and love always win. I believe in you, Tulsi. I, be I believe in your me me message. I believe in your heart. And I can say, with all sincerity, I authentically love you. I see you, sister. I see your love. And I am not alone. I am not al 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 alone. I struggle every day to remember the authenticity of who I am, a child of love and light and peace. I am here to serve selflessly. I have since I was a very little girl rescuing fledgling birds falling from their nests with my dear mama's help. I know what it is like to serve selflessly. And when I became injured at work in 2008, I was left with a permanent disability that has altered the course of my life in a way that challenges me to lovingly, compassionately be gentle with myself through this pro process because not, not, not only am I a vegan and a 
fierce ad ad advocate for lo love. I love my temple. I was an extreme ath ath athlete, and my body has changed in a manner that, that makes it so I daily must radically accept, radically accept this new normal. And although I try and have fought for my, 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 my rights and fiercely fought for the rights of others, my rights, the taxes I have pay, pay, paid to support those of us who are confronted with unfortunate circumstances that leave us in chronic pain or in disability of varying degrees, as recent as two nights ago, I was harassed by a medical doctor who mocked my speech impairment, and I am only here by grace. Tulsi, I would be hom homeless for not the grace and lo lo love of someone who happens to, 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 to barely be in a, ba ba a better position to not kick me on the streets. I am sorry it is taking so long. Thank you for li li listening to my, my, my heart. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you all for listening to my, my, my heart. I do, yeah, 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 yeah. Heart on my heart. I love you, girl, I love you, and I support you. You are s s such a beautiful being of love. I, 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 I wrote something I remember that I know that you know in your heart's message. Gandhiji said this, when I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time, they can seem invincible, but in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. Truth and love will always win. My question in this fight that not just me, so many others, 
who are livid that your voice is being silenced from the grander stage. My question, how, Tulsi G, how can I lovingly show up to serve you in this fight? And beyond this campaign, how can we continue to sh show up with our love and support? And beyond that, if there's any, any, anyone here who might know an attorney who can help me with my disability, I will be indebted. I am grateful to see these lovers of love here, and I am so grateful for you, and thank you, thank you, thank you, bless you. Anyone who told you you don't have a powerful voice didn't know what they were talking about. Your voice is more powerful than you may realize. And while you said in the past you were a public speaker and a performer, you are still a powerful public speaker. And you are bringing voice to so many people who feel that they have none. So if you're asking how you can help, how you can help me in my own mission of service and sharing this love and aloha and respect with others, it's by being who you are and by continuing on your own mission and path to help and to serve others. You're saying it doesn't seem like enough. I know the feeling, trust me. I live with it every day. But what, what can you do? Even with the adversity that stands before us, as great as those obstacles may seem, there is one thing, there is one thing that we can control. It's our attitude and the choices that we make in how we respond. Not only how we respond, but how we proactively combat that darkness with that light. So, for all of you who are thinking some of the same things of, you know, what happens next. And too often after campaigns are over and elections come and go, people are brokenhearted if it didn't go their way. Or feel like all is lost and let me go crawl back into the little cozy, comfortable home or a hole that I can shut out what else is happening in the world. You are facing more adversity than most. And the fact that you were able to come here today to lift your voice 
and to ask, how can I do more? You are already setting the example and being an inspiration for so many people. Because it does not stop here. It doesn't stop after election day. The kind of change that has brought all of us here today from all different backgrounds and all walks of life says that we together recognize there is a deeper spiritual change that we need to make in this country. One that brings us back to our core, to who we really are. That allows us to bring about a change in our laws and our policies and our leadership to not treat each other as objects to be used and abused and thrown away to treat each other with respect, to treat this planet with care and all life on it, to recognize that as Mahatma Gandhi said, Mother Earth provides enough for everyone's needs, but not enough for everyone's greed. We have a lot of work to do, and every single day, the answer to your question can be answered by saying, how can I do more? <laughs> never being complacent, never falling into that trap of saying, well, gosh, my life is too hard. The hardships are too great. I can't do it because of one excuse or another excuse or another excuse or another excuse. Take ownership. Take ownership for whatever tools and gifts that you have that may be different, yours than mine, but no less than, and maximizing those gifts and seeing them as an opportunity to reignite that light in someone else's heart where they will then go on and do the same. Thank you. Thank you for sharing with us and thank you for your heart. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yep. Awesome. It's an honor. Thank you so much for coming to Los Angeles first and foremost. Um, I'll try to keep it brief, because uh, I know a lot of people have questions, but uh, I just want to say um, I uh, just big shout out for um, calling out uh, Kamala Harris on the debate. Um, like that, I think as, as a Californian, and I, yeah, sorry, I moved here like two years ago, but like, yeah, I, like, I know her work up there is, isn't very legit. Um, um, thank you for voting present on the impeachment vote. Um, the, the DNC is like insanely corrupt. Um, I'm so sorry for what they're doing to you. I'm so proud of you for standing, keeping the fight. Which I have some good news for you, by the way. Uh, Pete Buttigieg dropped out. So please keep going. Like, keep going. Like, don't stop. Like, California is going to stand for you. Like, a lot of people here, like, are going to vote for you. People that aren't here are going to vote for you. And throughout the country. So, um... Because, yeah, like, some of us 
didn't vote for Clinton, uh, some of us voted for Trump, and you know, because he stood up to the establishment, and although he, I think he royally messed up and unfortunately got compromised, um, I think, I think uh, our votes matter, uh, and I'm, I'm happy that now at least you have a chance. You know, if it was Clinton in the office, like, I think we'd be screwed for another four years. Um, but my, my question for you is simply, um, uh, and I, I, don't, I don't mean to, to make it like bad or anything like that, but um, I kind of want to get some more information about your position on Palestine, you know, and, uh, because they're very underrepresented um, uh, people in the world that are suffering. There's, there's you know, people of all creeds uh, in China as well um, suffering, uh, but for the Palestinian people, you know, when you're president, because I think you will be, <laughs> uh, if not this time, next time, you know, what, what will you do for the Palestinian people to, to give them a future? Because um, uh, I know a lot of Palestinian immigrants live in the United States, and I think they matter. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to, to one of your first points, I just want to point out that, you know, what you're talking about with the DNC and the corporate media, it's not, it's not about what they're doing to me, it's really about what they're doing to all of us. And how... How by trying to pick and choose who they want voters to hear from and who they don't is really the greatest disservice to our democracy and to voters who deserve to be able to make the best informed decision on election day. That is the big injustice about what's happening here. Uh, the ongoing suffering and oppression of the Palestinian people is not only heartbreaking, but is something that the United States must play a central role in helping to resolve. The ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine has been going on for so long. It is very complex. There are no easy answers to this. But unfortunately, many of this, the decisions that have been made in the last few years have made a, a very bad situation terrible. The most recent announcement of a so-called peace agreement was offensive, in my opinion, because even without getting into any of the details of this agreement, how do you negotiate a peace agreement between two parties when you've only spoken to one? That's not how life works. That's not how it works. And then you tell the other one who didn't have a seat at the table, take it or leave it to your own peril. That's not how it works. And it's unfortunate because we have an opportunity as the United States to be able to help provide that uh, role of being a neutral mediator to help get these talks back on track. It would require undoing some of the decisions that this administration has made to make that conversation even possible. But doing so, this is what I would do, and being able to do so, um, respecting and understanding that ultimately those peace talks must lead to a place of resolving this conflict by an agreement between both parties. It cannot be something 
concocted externally by us or any other country and imposing it on the people of Palestine and the people of Israel saying, here's what will solve your problems. That'll never work. There's not an easy answer to this. We cannot be a biased arbiter if our real goal is to help bring about a peaceful outcome. That's the way that I would approach being able to help provide that positive impact towards truly being able to bring peace to the Middle East. Yes, sir. Hi, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. It's my third time seeing you, and it's always just, I was almost tempted to go to that Bernie event today. I'm glad I did not. <laughs> this was the right choice. Um, my question's kind of a tough one, so I know you got to be kind of careful in the answer here, but, uh, you know, JFK also said, um, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. Um, I'm all for peace, I'm for aloha, I'm for diplomacy. But when we get to a certain point, enough people are actually dying that this is a war, essentially. Not one that the people declared, but... Uh, one that we're the victim of. I mean, we already have each year the number of Americans dying from the opiate crisis is equal to the entire Vietnam War every year. At some point, when do we put on those yellow vests? We can try for peace as best we can, you know, have enough numbers that they just have to listen. Uh, they won't be happy about it, but they'll listen. Um, when do we reach that point? I feel we might have been there maybe 10 years ago, but I'm just curious where you stand on that with the Yellow Vest movement and when enough is enough. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Enough is enough. There's no question about how we, the American people, have had enough of the greed-driven policies that our representatives are passing in Washington. But again, I look to the example of the army of activists that Dr. King inspired, and that even in his own movement, there were those who questioned and criticized his nonviolent, love-inspired approach to change. They were very disciplined in this, they trained in this, that even when physically abused and assaulted, they didn't strike back. They didn't respond to that violence with violence. They didn't respond to that hate with hate. They simply stood strong, refusing to back down at great physical harm and peril, and even in some cases, their lives. And they were successful in bringing about so much historic change because of the way they chose to live and lead. So as we look to the change that we need to bring about, it's that example where I find the answer of setting that impeachable example that we are not 
we are not a people driven by hate or violence, that we are a people who standing up inspired by love are willing to stand for and fight for those that we love, all of us, our brothers and sisters and our country. There are so many ways to do that. The ballot box is the most simple, the most simple way to make sure that this change is heard. But that alone, it, it requires many more steps to follow that. Every one of us here in this room has a sphere of influence where you're no longer just speaking for one, but you can help create this movement and this army for change even amongst your own sphere of influence. This is about us, we the people, raising our voices to bring about changes to our campaign finance laws, to start firing those in Congress who are not working for us, to be able to make sure that that our voices are being heard in Washington. As frustrating as it is, there are some examples that I've experienced myself where on one day there was a bill that was coming to the House floor that seemed certain to pass, and within the span of less than 24 hours, there was an organic movement of people who started speaking up and saying, this is a bad bill because on Twitter, on Facebook, our phones are ringing off the hook, email boxes were being flooded, and something that went from a certain passage with bipartisan support fell with almost a, a complete 400 votes of, support, uh, of opposition because of that action that took place in that 24-hour time period. It's not easy, but exercising all the tools of our democracy is what we need to do to bring about this change. Ladies and gentlemen, we have time for one more question. Get a microphone up here, please. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, so I feel that the Democratic Party is having a civil war with itself namely establishment Democrats versus progressive Democrats. Uh, this entire primary, I've been split between voting for Andrew Yang, Bernie Sanders, and you. Uh, I ended up going all in with Yang, only for him to drop out. Uh, when you promised on Twitter to carry the torch of UBI, it became clear that there was a home for us, Yang gang, in the Gabbard camp. <laughs> So my question is, with Yang dropping out because he saw no path to victory, what is your path to victory? Or more importantly, what does victory mean to you? It's a good question. I mean, our path to victory lies within your hands, really. And so that's where uh, someone earlier said, you know, I don't know what your chances are. It doesn't seem very great. That's up to you. That's up to you. In my view, we've already won. When you look at how we've been outspent by tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of dollars, we have outlasted the vast majority of the other candidates who are running for president. 
How is that possible? It's because of you. It's because of you. So our ability to be able to continue to bring this message to voters is because of the many people across the country who are saying, you know what, how can I do more? I'm gonna skip a guy who's a supporter in Tennessee. He tweeted out yesterday or the day before and he said, you know, my family usually goes out for dinner once a week. We're not, we're skipping our, our family dinner out and eating at home so I can donate another 40 bucks to help you get your message out. Our campaign is a campaign that is of, by, and for the people. And I look forward to being able to continue this message to voters across the country in spite of the challenges that the media and the DNC has placed before us. Because what we're experiencing here today and the incredible energy in this room is the same thing we're experiencing everywhere we go, which tells me that people are hungry for the truth. People are hungry for real leadership. People are hungry for a leader who is committed to service, putting service above self, and who's willing to fight for you. Not just talk about it, but who's willing to put that skin in the game and fight for you. This is what I'm committed to doing now and going forward. I'm, thank you so much, everybody. Huh? Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm gonna just say a couple of words to close us out here. I wanna hear from one of our veterans who has come and joined us here today uh, before I close. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your service. Wait one sec, he'll, he'll turn up your microphone. Check, check. Check, check. There you go. All right, there you go. Thank you very much for taking the call. Uh, as a veteran, I see that one portion of the population that is ignored on a regular basis. We talk about Medicare, Medi-Cal for everyone. We talk about uh, forgiveness of student loans. We talk about the wars we have, we don't have, we like, we don't like. I'm a veteran from Vietnam era. Welcome home. I was met a vet out of Ashaw Valley on the 20th of August, 1969. We find now that when we have these conversations about medical care, that in the Veterans Administration, they lack a lot of judgment, a lot of guidance, and a lot of resources. If we're going to talk about Medicaid and Medi-Cal and how we can go and improve society as a whole, we should start with the VA. Any veteran who has anything other than a dishonorable discharge should get full and complete medical care at any VA. Those that serve them by attending medical school, nursing school, hospital care, administrations, that if they serve three years at a VA facility or supporting VA, or veterans anywhere in the world, their loan, student loans, are forgiven. How do you feel about that? Thank you for your service. Our VA is not making its mission. 
Our VA's mission is to care for those who've borne the battle. Care for those who have borne the battle. That means something. And yet our VA continues, even as some are getting the care that they need and are happy with, there are far too many who are being left behind, who are fighting for decades, decades, through appeals processes and red tape to be able to get their disability claims approved or to be able to get the care that they need. Just as your generation fought for decades to get care for exposure to Agent Orange that caused so many to develop cancers and other sicknesses and illnesses because the VA said there's no correlation between your exposure and the illness that you have. Too many lives were lost because of that failure to do exactly what you said. You served, you deserve care. We're in a place now where, unfortunately, with my generation of veterans, we are facing that very same challenge with the exposure of millions of servicemen and women, deployment after deployment after deployment to toxic burn pits, many coming back and developing rare cancers and respiratory illnesses, threatening that this will be the Agent Orange of our generation. We are fighting these same battles now, working with uh, members, Republicans, Congressman Brian Mast is a fellow veteran, working to actually fix these problems. Number one, the VA must treat every veteran who walks through those doors with the honor and five-star service that you deserve. <laughs> that no veteran will be left behind. And number two, and there's legislation that we're working on now to, to uh, make sure that we are attracting the best doctors and the best nurses by creating a sort of civilian GI Bill to make sure that whether it's tuition forgiveness or tuition assistance, that we are bringing those who choose that path of service the ability to be able to do so. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Have, have a seat real quick. Have a seat real quick. I will always carry on. I will never quit. That's not who I am. Nor should you, nor should you. I'm so heartwarmed and grateful that all of you took the time to come out here and to share your aloha with me, with our team, with my family. Time, time is the most precious thing that any one of us has to give. And the fact that you chose to give some of your time here today means so much to me. Because I know that the time that you've shared here today won't stop here. The choice is ours about what we want to see our country become. 
Don't let anyone else tell you that you don't matter, that your voice won't be heard. That will only be true if you allow them to be right. Don't let any pundit or talking head on television tell you who can and cannot win this election. That choice is in your hands. And even now, as we're 48 hours before California goes and makes sure that their voice is heard, don't be complacent. I'm here to ask for your support. I'm here to ask for your help. That as you walk out these doors, you start thinking about who you can call, who you can visit, who you can talk to, to make sure that our voices are heard in Washington loud and clear, and that you make it a little difficult for those on any of the cable network shows to continue the kind of nonsense and divisiveness that they have perpetuated for too long. Our future belongs to us. Let's do something about it. Thank you for your support. Thank you for being here. I love you all so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.